0: Okay, so we've been in our series, Portraits of Jesus, from the Gospel of John. Tonight, I'm going to look at a passage from John 9. It's a long passage, so just bear with me, like, set up some strength as we read it. I'm going to read it for us, and then i want to talk about what, what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world in our lives. Um, so, John 9, 1 to 41. Well, let's jump in. <clears throat> as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, whose sinned? this man or his parents said he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this, man, that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing The neighbors, there's a couple characters, the neighbors the first one. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others says, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. (laughs) They weren't listening, obviously. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees this is the second characters, the man who had formerly been blind. Now <clears> it <throat> was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so you know the Pharisees are going to freak out. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, "He put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see." Some of the Pharisees said, "This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath." But others said, "How can a man who is a sinner do such signs?" And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, "What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes?" And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents. This is the third set of characters. The parents of the man who had received his sight. And asked them, is this your son who who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a beautiful phrase for conversion. They said to him, what did he say to you? How did he open your eyes? answered them I've told you already and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to become his disciples and they reviled him saying you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses we know that God has spoken uh, to Moses but as for this man we do not know where he comes from the man answered why this is an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that God does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will God listens to him Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone, who opened, that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, "For judgment, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, "Are we also blind?" And Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains." Let me pray for us. That's long. We pray, and then I want to jump in. Let's pray first. Jesus, uh, what a story! Some of us can relate to this man, um, maybe not in in physical healing, but in the way you turned our lives upside down without much explanation. Maybe our parents could understand it, maybe friends, maybe just loved ones. And um, Lord, I, I pray that you would, as we think about this story, as we think about this man, that you would, again, that you would meet us and turn our lives upside down, and that you would do things in our midst that are unbelievable, because we know that you are the Lord, and we know that you are risen. And we know that you love us. And we know that you came that blind people like us make see. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. So one of my favorite uh, C.S. Lewis pieces is a short little uh, sort of essay, less than an essay, called Meditation in a Toolshed. And he's thinking about this idea of light. And he's thinking about this idea of the difference between looking into a light versus looking alongside a light. And this is what he says. Just listen as I sort of read it. Read it along with me. It's in your handout. <clears throat> Here's where he starts. He says, I was standing today in the dark tool shed, the sun was shining outside, and through the crack in the, at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. And then I moved so that the beam fell in my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed. And above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences, but this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he's been trying to remember all his life. And ten minutes, casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all of the women in the world can grant. Lie, lie is, that's not right. <laughs> love is, as they say in love. He is. He is, as they say, in love. Sorry, Miss Brent. That's my fault, guys. That's on me. Now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. For him, it is an affair of the young man's genes and a recognized biological stimulus. That is the difference between looking along, romance, and looking at it. Lewis has said the same thing about Christianity. He said, I don't look at Christianity's, uh, you know, if you look at the quote, I believe in Christianity's, I believe in the sun, that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Here's what I want to do tonight. Jesus in this passage says, he calls himself the light of the world. And if we follow him in this passage, we actually begin to see he begins to illuminate things. He begins to illuminate dark things in us. And I want to look at just sort of the uh, four things that Jesus, as as the light of the world, begins to illuminate, begins to shine the light into the darkness, begins to shine the light on. Four things that we're going to look at tonight. First, suffering. Second, apathy. Thirdly, fear of men. Fourthly, pride. That Jesus is the light of the world. He begins to shine his light on those four things. Suffering, apathy, fear of men, fear of man. Let's look at them together. First, Jesus shines the light on suffering. Now, it's fascinating if you're following the story. Part of the controversy breaks out because here's this man born blind. And even Jesus' own disciples think the world is like this. Something bad happens to you, especially if you're born with some sort of sickness or disease. Someone had to sin. In other words, even the disciples, the worldview of the day that was very attractive to religious people was... The world is sort of like a cosmic slot machine. You put a good thing in, you get good things out. You put a bad thing in, you get bad things out. Another way of talking about that is karma. This sort of what you do, you'll, you know, good things do good. Good things will come back to you. Do bad things, bad things will come back to you. So they look at this man born blind and they say, someone sinned. No one is just born, no one innocent, no one not guilty is just born blind. And Jesus says, nope, that's not how the world works. And Jesus begins to shine the light on suffering. And he begins to say, no, the world, post-Genesis 3, is a fallen, broken place, and things do not go as they should go. Our bodies do not work as they should work. Things happen to us quite apart from our moral stability or moral record. We live in a broken world. Broken things happen. We are broken people. We contribute to those things, and we experience those things. There's no one in here tonight that has not known something of suffering. There's no one in this room tonight who has not known something of the suffering that, that comes just by virtue of being born into a broken world. This came home to my wife and I pretty really about two months ago. We have a daughter named Sadie who's three, she'll be four in March, and she was born with a condition called Dandy Walker. And Dandy Walker basically is this condition that where her cerebellum didn't develop like it should have. And so what happens is all they could tell us when when she was in the womb was she didn't have a cerebellum. We didn't know what it meant. We knew there was swelling in the brain. We knew that the spectrum was she could go in to be healthy or she could die a few days after birth. We had no idea what was coming. Thankfully, we had great doctors. They operated fast. They put a, a shunt in her head right after she was born, a shunt that drains the excess fluid. And it drains. It's pretty amazing. It drains it down from her brain into her stomach cavity. And it's a long shunt that will kind of grow with her her whole life. She's doing fantastic. She does physical therapy every week, but she's growing and doing great. But two months ago, for the first time, she's three, she was feeling in her head, and she felt the shunt. If you feel, if you were a see Sadie, she's got a lot of blonde curly hair. She's sort of a hot mess. Um, you say that about your kids? You just did. Um, but you can feel, like it's really, you can very easily feel the sh- just protruding the shunt. And so she was feeling it, and, and she touched it, and she said, Mom, what's this? And I wasn't there, but Alyssa texted me. She, she started crying, and then I got the text, and I started crying. Because how, how do you explain that to a three-year-old? That your brain is broken? That's not working like it should? And, but thank the Lord for modern I mean, it was a moment for us where I knew as a, as a parent, the one thing you can't protect your kids from is suffering. And I would love to tell you tonight, like, God's will for you is to not experience any suffering, that if you trust in Jesus, you will never experience any suffering. You will go on along the golden road, the golden brick road, to see the Wizard of Oz, and everything will turn out beautiful and happy, and some weird stuff might happen, but your life will be suffering-free. And Jesus says, he shines the light on the darkness of suffering, he says, listen, the bad news is, suffering's coming your way. There's no way that you're going to avoid suffering. The good news is... For us as believers is even though he doesn't keep us from suffering, he keeps us in the suffering. And that's the promise he begins to to give to this blind man. As he begins to heal him, he didn't promise no more suffering. What he promised was a savior in the midst of his suffering to stand beside him and bring healing love and life into his life. I love, uh, there's if you read, if you get any book this Christmas, forget Christian bookstore stuff. It's fine. It's good stuff there. Go back off of Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. It's, fiction. it's one of the best books I've read in the last, my, my whole life. And there's a line in there. It's, it's basically a memoir, sort of a fiction memoir of a, a pastor writing letters to his son who's going to die. And his son's going to, he's a, a young son, an old man, an old father. And there's this line in there that I love where he says this about this idea. We can't protect our children. We can't life, suffering in life is unavoidable. Here's what she writes. She says, that is how life goes. We send our children into the wilderness, some of them in the day that they are born, it seems, for all the help we can give them. Some of them seem to be a kind of wilderness unto themselves. But there must be angels there, too, and springs of water. Even that wilderness, the very habitation of jackals, is the Lord's. The Lord will not promise to keep you from suffering, but he promises to keep you in the suffering and walk alongside with you. First, suffering. He begins to shine the light on that. The second thing he begins to shine the light on, and this is where it hits us, especially as college students, is apathy. And that's where the first set of characters, how they respond to this healing, comes into the picture. Because it's the neighbor's. It's the people who are around this man, saw him begging in the street every day. Some of them probably begged alongside of him. Some of them were just people of the town. And <laughs> it's interesting their response. Because they really don't care. They're like, oh, that might be the guy. Might not be the guy. Is it the guy? He's saying, yeah, yeah, it's me, the guys. Like, remember me? This is me. Jesus, like, this is, I'm the same guy. And they're like, uh. And sort of, you could put their, you got sort of a physical gesture on their whole response. It's just, it's meh. Right? It's just, whatever. Apathy. Apathy, if you know that, if you have an apathetic heart, it's a huge struggle in my life, has parents, two parents. The first is cynicism. We get apathetic because we're cynical. You can imagine those neighbors being like, no, no way, not the guy. Because healing like that doesn't happen. They're incredibly cynical that something like that could even happen. Cynicism is a huge deal for us. Cynicism, why, why do we do it? Why do some of us roll our, like, our, our default position to anything, especially hopeful good things, is like a hard roll of the eyes? It's just sort of like, and you know, we're thinking internally, BS. Cynicism is a huge deal for us. Cynicism, in a lot of ways, is driven by this, this fear that if we open ourselves up to hope, if we open ourselves up to joy, we're going to get burned again. Some of us are very cynical because we've experienced, number one, we've experienced some suffering. We've experienced some broken hearts. We've experienced some bad things that have happened to us. And so a default response to that, a non-gospel response to that, is to be cynical. To be cynical that anything good could ever happen. To be cynical that anything could ever go your way. To be be cynical cynical means to never want to be vulnerable. To never want to open yourself up to the idea that something could be hopeful because you don't want to be hurt again. Cynicism is a spiritual cancer that eats away at hope. And it eats away at joy. C.S. Lewis would say about cynicism... To the pers- to those of us in the room who think we see through everything, who just roll our eyes at the, the Netflix shows that, you know, like I have friends watching Gilmore Girls, and I'm like rolling my eyes, and I'm like, <laughs> who watches Gilmore Girls? And apparently, it's a great show, and I think I would like it. But we have this response where it's kind of like we see through everything. And Lewis has this line where he says, "When you begin to see through, if you think you see through everything, you will see through literally everything, and there will be nothing left to see." The other thing, the other parent of apathy isn't just cynicism, it's actually uh, indifference. Part of why these neighbors don't care about this man is it's not them. Part of why these neighbors don't care about this guy at all is it doesn't directly relate to their own lives. In other words, part of it is just pure indifference, indifference pure and simple. A A lack of caring about anything because it doesn't directly connect to you. This happened uh, just in my family the other day, where Asher's jumping. I have four kids. My two oldest, Jane, Mac and Asher. Asher's jumping on the trampoline, and uh, we got a trampoline last Christmas, which was a mistake on many, many levels. Mainly because I was putting the thing together like till four in the morning by myself, which was a humbling moment. So they're jumping, he's jumping, he flings back, he hits his head, does one of those things where his head bursts open, blood starts to pour, Alyssa comes running out, my wife, he comes running in, we're thinking ER, I'm not there at this point, Alyssa's thinking ER, we've got to go to the ER, and she's like trying to get load all the kids up, and she goes, J-Mac, it's time to go into the car, and she goes, no, I'm not going into the car with you, and Alyssa's like, how do I handle this moment, and she says, yeah, you're going to go in the car, she says, no, I'm not going to the hospital, if I go to the hospital, I'll get sick. And Alyssa's like shocked at her indifference to her her brother with blood pouring from her head. And it's a picture for me. And she ends up saying like, remember that? She actually does this. She actually says, remember that time I busted my head? Let's talk about that for a second. And Alyssa's like, holy, these are my kids. And for me, it's a picture of how indifferent our hearts are if something doesn't directly affect us. Because we are some selfish, selfish people. And if we're being honest, we don't care about each other. If you're being honest tonight, you, don't care. you might care about one person in this room and it's probably the person you're trying to get to like, like you. And that's about it. Your roommates, you don't care about them. Right? That's why you get mad at them for drinking too much milk. <laughs> and you're like literally pissed. And you're like, oh, I need some counseling around this. I, we, cynicism and indifference leads us to apathetic hearts. Um, Here's the, how do you repent of an apathetic heart? You begin to put yourself in the midst of God's people, especially the ones that you would never want to be friends with. And you go to Greece with them, or you go to harvest hope with them, or you, you know, you get involved. You get out of yourself and into the lives of others. Are you doing that? Are you getting out of yourself and into the lives of one another? So first, suffering, then Jesus begins to shine a light on our apathy. Thirdly, he begins to shine a light on our fear of men. And this is where the parents come in. We're going to skip the Pharisees and come back to them. So the Pharisees aren't happy with this man's story, so they, take it, they go to the parents. They go to the source and say, okay, tell us the truth. Is this your son? Was he really born blind? Let's get to the bottom of it. And the parents, John records for us, the parents, they can't think about Jesus They can't even think about that Jesus might have actually healed their son, that that seems to be what happened, because they're so afraid of what these men are going to think of them. And they're especially afraid, if you're looking at the passage, they're especially afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. In other words, they know what it's going to mean relationally, to to admit anything about Jesus. They know what it's going to mean socially. They know what it's going to mean in terms of their religious community. They know what it's going to mean to actually risk love for Jesus, risk even being open to the possibility of following Jesus, knowing him, worshiping him. They're they're because they're too afraid of what other people think. Listen, this one for me is huge because approval is my deal. Like part of why I even became a pastor was because I'm performance driven. And so we do this and I need affirmation from it. And I often care far, far more about what I think you think of me than I actually care about what Jesus actually thinks of me. Does that make sense? So part of how a lot of you are driven in here is you are far more focused and obsessed with what other people think. It could be your roommates. It could be whatever group of people you're trying to impress right now. You've got one. You've got what CSL would call an inner ring that you think, literally, if I could just get into this inner ring of people, if I could just get into that relationship, or if I could get into that fraternity or sorority, if I could get into this group of people, if I could be invited to Mose Monday with these people, if I could be invited to this or that, then I'll know I'm somebody. In other words, what our hearts say is, if I could just have these people like me, then I'll know I'm someone. And the reality was crippling and crushing is two things. Number one, we get it, and it's disappointing. We, we become friends with our dream set of friends, and then we realize very, very quickly that there's another inner ring. There's another place where we think if we can get into that place, then we'll be loved and known and happy. And it's a perpetual, endless, endless, endless amount of inner rings. The second thing that happens is you can never actually know. This is what I have to tell my heart all the time. You can never actually know what someone else thinks of you. That's what drives. That's what is so hard about fear of none, is I can know what I think you know about me or think of me, and I can think I know what you say about me and trust it and believe it's true. But the reality is, there's only there's only one person who I can know who what he thinks about me, and it's Jesus. And we take one look at the cross, and we can know what Jesus thinks of us. Instead of he literally loves us to death. And there's a sense in which that begins to undo us. But these parents are stuck in it. They're 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 stuck in it. The other day I went to see uh, the movie Birdman. It's a story of Michael Keaton who played Batman in the 90s. And then he sort of, it's kind of a, a, a play on his career and how his career crumbled from there. And, and this character lives for approval. And at one point Emma Stone, his daughter, looks at him and says, that's what you always do. You always confuse admiration for love. So the question for you tonight is, are you driven more by what Jesus thinks of you Or are you driven more by what the people around you, what you think they think of you? Are you more obsessed with what Jesus actually thinks of you? Or are you more driven, are you living for what other people think about you? So Jesus begins to shine the light on suffering, apathy, fear of men. And the last thing he shines the light on is pride. This is the Pharisees. And this is what I want to go back to, the third set of characters. The biggest resistance here is The Pharisees, they hate Jesus. They hate him to the point where they literally are going to plot to kill him. And never, please never miss the very simple observation that the people who hated Jesus the most and had him killed were the most faithful churchgoers in Jesus' day. Please don't miss that very, very, very outwardly good people are the very people who killed Jesus. Not the prostitutes, not the tax collectors, not the sinners of the day, the drunkards and the gluttons. The people who hated Jesus and killed him the most were people who knew their Bibles. Were people who got together multiple times a week to sing praise songs. Were people who thought of themselves as very, very good. And they were, in some ways. Outwardly. Then why did they kill Jesus? Why did they hate Jesus? Because Jesus, this way he shines the light, owned their bad motives for their being good. He shines a light on their pride. He shines a light on the pride that is, on the outside everything looks beautiful, but the pride is eating away at their hearts and it drives everything they do. And the sickest thing about it is it drives what they do for God. Everything they do for God, the Pharisees, is selfishly driven and motivated. And Jesus exposes it. And rather than face it in themselves, they kill Jesus. Flannery O'Connor wrote this story called The Turkey. And it's the story of Ruler, who's this kid, and he, he wants one thing to happen in his life. He prays for it at the beginning. He wants to kill this turkey and then take it around town and show all the other, his other friends and the people in town that he's an incredible guy, and then he wants to give the turkey to some homeless person. And so Ruler happens upon this, this turkey that's actually been shot. He doesn't shoot it. He actually It's been shot. It's wounded. It's dying. He takes the turkey, pulls it over his shoulder, he starts walking through town. And he literally starts praying, God... Give me someone who's poor to give this turkey to. And he walks through town. He's everybody saying, Ruler, did you kill that turkey? He's like, yeah, I killed this turkey. This is my turkey. Ruler, did you kill that turkey? Yeah, I killed this turkey. And then finally, the story of Flannery Conner's genius at this. She gets to the end. And this group of boys, Ruler thinks they're coming to just look at the turkey and admire it. group of his friends. And instead, they ask him to, if they can see the turkey. He gives it to them. They steal it and walk away. And Ruler, it says, begins running. And this is literally what O'Connor says. He says he ran faster and faster as he turned up the road to his house. His heart was running as fast as his legs. And he was certain that something awful, all caps, something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. No one gets this better. The the irony of of O'Connor, of the turkey, is Ruler didn't want to do good. Because he could have taken the turkey and just given it immediately to the people that needed it. He wanted to appear good. And this is what happens with the Pharisees Jesus exposes that in them. They don't actually want to love God, they want people to think they love God. Because it gives them some appearance of control, it gives them some appearance of goodness they can't let go of, to the point where they actually crucify Jesus. So, where are you? Maybe you're in a season of suffering, and you don't understand what Jesus is doing. And can I say, he's not, his promise is, is never to keep you from suffering, but do you see the ways he's keeping you in the suffering? Or Maybe you've got an apathetic heart, a heart full of cynicism, a heart full of indifference. Have you ever repented of that? Have you ever repented of your apathy? Some of you need to repent of your apathy and go get involved on campus, and go get in the dorms, be an R.M., And care about something. Are you controlled and gripped by fear of men? Where literally from the moment you wake up to the moment you've put your head on your pillow, you're thinking about what they're going to think of me, what they did think of me, what they are thinking of me, and you're ruled and you're gripped by it. Have you ever thought that you could take that to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't know what people think of me, but I can know what you think of me. Help what you think of me to be bigger than what other people think of me. Please. And some of you, all of us, are gripped by pride. Lewis would say, the devil became the devil not through lust, but through pride. Have you ever repented of your pride? If you want to know if you're a proud person, ask your friends. You think I'm proud? And the ones that love you will say, a little. Like if you see, I don't know if you saw this little meme going around or a little comic strip where the guy, the friend says, I don't think people hate you because you're a Christian. I think people hate you because, you know. And that's true for a lot of us. People hate us not because we're a Christian. People hate us because we're proud. You're repentant of that. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we need you to come shine the light on us. We thank you that though you are the light of the world, you are also the lover of our souls. I pray that you would give us gospel courage to actually face the worst that's in us. And that you, as you you expose these things, would know that these are the reasons you came to die. Lord, I pray that you would give... We all need a deeper grasp of actually why you died for us. Because if we're being honest, some of us know that you died and know that it should mean something to us. But we couldn't say actual things in our lives that you died for. And I pray that you would give us a greater knowledge of that even tonight. We we'll pray these things in Christ's name.
1: Amen.